Welcome to the Coaching Badges podcast and thanks for listening in. A special shout out to the new sponsor of the show, Place.Data. Check the lads out at Place.Data.com. Joining me on the show tonight, my co-host Mark Anderson and usual contributors Paul William Nick. Good to see you lads. On the pod tonight, we chat about the news from the sporting world's just gone. We'll also be discussing our coaching topic for the show. This week, it's all about strength and conditioning. Later on, Claire Walsh joins us as a guest. Amongst other things, we'll be chatting about Claire's participation as an elite athlete in the fascinating sport of freediving. Along with the other usual bits and pieces, we hope you'll enjoy the show. So, Mark, what have you got for us from the world of sport and coaching this week? I'm going to start by apologising for use of bad language, but my fucking God, this Super League has just done my nothing. And, and I don't know why all these clubs in, in the Premier League are all up in arms. What did they think was going to happen? How did they think they were funding all these million, million euro or million sterling wages? Where did they think all this money? This started with Sky and the, and the money pumped into teams at an early age. When, when they start broadcasting. And this is, like it, or, and I, I am not a fan, I want to say that, but this will be inevitable because it's the only way these clubs can actually sustain the debt that they have. I think it was reported something like 7 billion of debt between the 12 clubs that were first muted. That's, that's unsustainable unless you've got a new model and they want to go and replicate what's in the NFL and what's in the American football where there's no promotion, no relegation, one winner wins all, and um, it's just like a franchise. And the horrible reality is the five of us who grew up supporting various different teams, it's a different sport that we're looking at now. And the knock-on effect of that is I read an article about Walsall, who are another club who've been around for God knows how long, are on the brink of going out. And I just wonder with this and coronavirus, what way and what, what football is going to look like over the next few years. Um, and I just think the Super League, I thought it was quite rich. I thought Gary Neville was very good at making points. But listen, these guys have all made huge money and made great livings out of it. And they would all be very, very naive to think that the Super League it was, it was just, it was just it was going to happen or it's just going to go away. It'll come back in some variation because otherwise these clubs will not survive. And people saying that the likes of the Glaziers and the guys that Liverpool should sell the clubs and everything else and give it back to the fans with the greatest respect there's no fans going to be worth all that kind of money be able to buy them for 4 billion to go so it'll be just interesting to see what happens and then one other thing that caught my mind was Jose Mourinho is he finished at club football is he now old school or has he got another club in him it'll be interesting to see well the two big stories there the Super League certainly I, I, I was disappointed when I heard the news breaking I'm a fan of Liverpool 40 odd years I was disappointed I was even more disappointed when I kind of realised as I read and tried to learn as much about it like everybody else scrambling around trying to find out what was going on that the likes of Klopp and the players you know were kept in the dark literally until the 11th hour and I thought they were put on the spot in the game against Leeds you know they've been asked questions that really should have been aimed at the the, the owners of the club and then there was some kind of apology and I watched it and I, I'm still not convinced I think it was a, an apology after the fact and a little bit too late but it's it's what I am interested in and I am a skeptic so I'm wondering when I see the likes of you know, UEFA president uh, Alexander Seferan coming out and saying, you know, all the 12 clubs will face consequences. And, you know, I'm just wondering, are they protecting their own interests? Because let's face it, UEFA and FIFA are hugely powerful in world football. And and there's been their own levels of scandal at those organisations over the years that have been well documented. So I, I think, sadly, money does drive an awful lot of what goes on in the world and football is no different and um, so I do think you're right, Mark. I don't think it's going to go away, but I'm just disappointed that the, the kind of what we're now being called legacy fans, you know, to be even categorized as that is shocking when it just makes you feel like 
they're targeting, you know, the next generation, the younger generation of, of fans coming through. And it's now a global game. So the game is definitely changing. And and from my own point of view, I've definitely lost an awful lot of interest, even in my own club over the last uh, couple of days, you know, as I start to kind of realise that, you know what, it's the owners of these clubs don't really give a damn about the fans for all they say. And all the customers got. It, it, that's and exactly it. And the players are a commodity that can be traded and moved around. And yeah. listen, I mean, in a in a bizarre way, given where we are and what we do as well, there's an opportunity for the smaller clubs, be it in be it in Scotland, England, or Ireland, to maybe build on that fan base and make that connection. And people remember what going to a game is all about. I, I, so there may be some positive in that as well. But um, I, I think when you have uh, UEFA and FIFA. Uh, coming out as the goodies in this, you know something's not right, and I think it's no, it's no, it hasn't been lost on me as well that the the Champions League automatically now have a new format, um, just subtly put in there when this Super League stuff, which I think is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, yeah, it was a weird week in football, but um, it's like football stood still for them two days. It was like morning. It was like especially the Monday night football really brought it home. You'd like to know how these um these teams, these owners, who's advising them. Like they're all American owners. I imagine they're probably American advisors. Like they want, surely they want to have British owners, British advisors in there talking about the common man on the street. How the, like this was never going to work. It was never going to keep the hands, the fans happy whatsoever. So I don't know what route they obviously weren't advised properly on it. They were so nonchalant in the approach to it that the fans would automatically take to this, love it. And as Mark said there, then you wait for Champions League. They snuck in the new rules, changed it under the guise of all this, you know. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't really see. No, you're right. I, I definitely think they they understated the power of the fans or underestimated it, Paul. Like the, the backlash was unbelievable. And I do think Neville and Carragher spoke really well. And, and yeah. when I heard them. But you got to, you're, you're right. Like these guys, they're they're super owners now. They're super rich from all over the world. So you've got the the Arabs involved with City. You've got the Russians involved with Chelsea. You've Americans involved, and they're used to just getting what they want because the money will buy what they want. Like you've had scenes in the states before where they've up and rooted franchises in the NFL and just dropped them yeah. in different cities and kept the same names and weird stuff. So they, I definitely don't think they appreciated the power of the just the. The normal, the legacy fans uh, in British football, in particular. So it was, it was interesting to see. But I said, yeah, you're right. There was a, it's left a bad taste, I think, certainly for in my mouth. Isn't it interesting too that Real Madrid have maintained their stance on it, as have Barcelona? They're saying it's not that that it will go ahead, and they see Milan and Juventus seem to support them as well, don't they? They're still before them, still, aren't they? As far as yeah, yeah. Perez is the big one pushing it. He seems because of the money, because it's the death. Yeah, them and Barcelona, that's the only way they see themselves getting out of this debt. Bring up this new kind of format that they will generate. And in fairness, like when if you were to sit down and say, okay, what a TV money would, would West Ham versus Southampton bring in as opposed to Liverpool versus Real? Mm, I'm surprised that Joan Laporta, the Barcelona president, came in. It's like he knows what that club's on about them. He's supported it and followed it since he was a boy. And he had a really good stint, obviously. From 2003 to 2012, like their golden years, and sort of a time when they known better, and or at least have backed down like the others. But he thinks to still be there. Do you know what I mean? Mulling in with it's all great, really, isn't it? It's all great money and death. I, I, I love how Mick is staying really quiet in all this. <laughs> the, the best part of it for me was the shithousery at, at uh, Ellen Road. I, I thought it was brilliant. I, I thought Leeds, Leeds played a blinder. Um, leaving the t-shirts in the dressing room. I know it's not the poor players, but Klopp got very spiky. And I, I love Klopp. I think he's a great manager. And it's very clear that he, he was always against this anyway. But um, I think the t-shirts thing and the, the banner in the 
the crowd so quickly, uh, not in the crowd, in the stadium. You know, it, it, it gave, it gave again, highlighted the issue that some clubs weren't against or were so against it. But Leeds have to be careful as well because Rod Rosani is uh, the major shareholder there. But the San Francisco 49ers have increased yeah. their stake as well. So he could very quickly find himself in trouble there as well. So, you know, it's, um, I, I think this American type ownership isn't, is, isn't going to be good for English clubs, ultimately. Yeah, I think no, the 49ers have taken a bigger percentage now, Mick, haven't they? The 49ers have taken over a bit more of Leeds now, 34%, I think it's up to... Yes, yeah, yeah. but he, he's still the major shareholder. But, I mean, he, he, he needs to be careful. I mean, everyone's, any club is, 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 they're all looking for money. The big money seems to be coming from America and from, from Asia. You know, so and, and I mean, as as is as touched on there, it's it's a to- totally different culture in the way their game is run to the way the, the game is over in the, in the UK. And just, just just to give you an example of that, like in the NFL, the normal fan cannot afford to go to a game. It's aimed at the upper middle class and fans, legacy fans, whatever you want to call them. Green Bay Packers would be seen as one of the founded members, institution, um, like you can't afford it. You can't afford a ticket for a game. So it's aimed at, I remember I've gone to a couple, it's aimed at a whole full day experience from the concert in the car park with a band or the radio station set up to the to all the food outlets to when you get in there to the halftime show to as much they can get out of your pocket. And the game can, sometimes could be secondary. So it's an entertainment industry. But Mark, that doesn't make sense to me, especially the way the world's gone now. The whole world's in a recession. That doesn't mean so. Does that mean that's people to be able to afford that? So would your attendances drop then? Well, of course it would, but the attendances wouldn't drop because these clubs would just attract what you would call fans coming in for games. Like, I mean, they'll go and see Barcelona play Real Madrid or someone in Europe for a weekend. Like, I mean, so the, the fan that had been there since they were a kid kind of gets priced out of the model. It's the same, and it's happening even in British football as, as it stands. Like, I mean, the price of tickets, the price of merchandise and for a jersey has gone up to, what, 70, 80 euro to buy your team's jersey. Like, when I was buying it for my son at the start, it was 20 and 30. So it's just ridiculous. So I, I think football's going to eat itself and this is the way it'll become. And then in the same week, you've had talk of, oh, maybe Celtic and Rangers could, could join in and it could be an all-British league. So this isn't gone away and they may have lost. They have a, These guys are all intelligent, wealthy. And to go back to your point about being advised, I'd say this was scenario two. So they have a plan. There's plans here because otherwise the football won't survive because I can't because of the money. Do you think a salary cap will help? Yes. The game. Well, yes, the American owners, the American owners want a salary cap. And that's why in the NFL, you see, there's, with the exception of maybe the Patriots for a period of time, there's no real domination of teams winning it year to year because you've got your draft. So the best kids coming out of college, um, you're the worst team. You get first pick of the best player and you can trade up and down to make it worth your while. But there's a salary cap. So you've got teams that are all in and around themselves. Um, and I think, that, I think there's, a, there's just too much money to risk. If you're a team like Liverpool sitting there, you've invested all these millions and billions into it and you have a shit season and injuries and everything else and you finish outside the Champions League. Where's your money and your return on your investment? And owners don't want that risk when it comes to money. Yeah, sadly, boys, down to money. Boys, go and support your local clubs. You know, we're all involved closely and have been in the League of Ireland for years. Bows and Rovers were on the television on Friday night. Great game of football, great advert for the game. So I would encourage people to get out and, and go and support your local clubs more. You know, this thing isn't going away, but certainly you can invest your time, effort and money into things closer to home. So, yeah, look, you're right, Mark. I think we'll discuss this again and again. Briefly on your point about Mourinho, I, I think Mourinho's under savage pressure. You know, he's, he's proven now that he has a way of operating and it hasn't worked in his last number of jobs. So that kind of 
initial novelty that we had when he came out of Porto and he was so young and energetic and different and disruptive. It seems to have worn off and, and there's only, you know, so long you can carry that persona of the kind of bad guy that he's done now everywhere he's gone. Everybody just seems to get sick of it pretty quickly. So I wasn't surprised by that. Um, and where he goes next, I think he's a good fit for international football, you know, for Portugal or somebody like that personally, but I, I don't know. Oh, I was going to touch on that there, Gav, as well. I think international football is made from six or seven games a season, you know. It's a wow factor. I think Portugal is the... I don't think club management anymore from now. The players don't respect him enough. And he just seems to single out a few players and pick on them and blame the players. And he doesn't take responsibility himself. So I can't see club management, but I think definitely international. I think whenever the Portuguese job comes available. Yeah, and there's not too many people. Like, he's still on big money. And, and his nine or ten staff you know, yeah. who are all in there at a million a quid a year or something crazy. So there's not many people who can afford him, Paul. Yeah. But I, I definitely think you're right. He still is charismatic. He still is a figure within the game. Mm-hmm. And he'll end up in one of these super leagues or somewhere like that, uh, or international management. But in terms of his, you know, when you watch him from a coaching point of view, you don't see anything that, I don't see anything that impresses me in terms of how he sets up tactically at all. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm not surprised by it at all. You talk about his money, you say how much money he earns. I think he's the number one manager in the world to, like, to earn, I think it was 77 million from different seconds. Do you know what I mean? That's mad. 77 million. Saw that there on was Twitter or Sky, News, Sky Sports News or something there the other day. That's crazy. Quickly, seven million quid, you know, for being sacked. For failing. So, yeah. for being brutal at your job. Like that, they, they in itself is a problem. You know what I mean? That's a problem with football. He's a great sportsman. it is. But there's a job, I think there's a job in Ireland. He could maybe go in as an assistant with Stephen Kenny. I think there's a couple of positions that are becoming available there. See how long it lasts. Right, boys, moving on. We'll be here all day talking about the Super League. On now to our coaching topic. Every week on the pod, we try and get into some detail on coaching uh, and discuss uh, an area that interests us. This week, it's all about strength and conditioning, or SNC, as, as a lot of people would call it. Uh, crucial elements in terms of how you get your players fit and avoid injury and, and just help them develop their, their kind of physical capabilities. So, lads, can I ask you, lads, what do you think when you hear the words SNC? For me, SNC, I suppose, it's the term used to describe a range of exercises which can be used to help players build sort of strength, size, and endurance. It also helps them to improve their core strength, improve their posture, and it's big on injury prevention as well. I suppose it's you know it's it's really came to the forefront over the last ten years, give or take, and it seems to be filtered down to the professional game, even into the amateur game, you know. So I suppose I was looking at it there. And I was just thinking about, you know, say if you look at the grassroots level, what is strength and conditioning and what's it all about? So if you look at between, say, seven and 12 year olds, first things first is like it's all about movement discovery. So the different range, the different range of motions and different movements with and without the ball. It's all about getting, you know, activating muscles. And then you're looking at sort of SAQ, which is your, you know, your speed, agility and frequency gain to that. Then and then I suppose technical work then from and linked in with the SQ sort of to help increase you know, the quality and speed of their you know technique on the ball. That's really what it's about. You know, that's just a brief summary. No, it's it's goodwill. And I, I personally I think from when I think back to my time getting involved in coaching, you know, 15, 18 years ago, whatever it was, you know, I think there's a misconception that like certainly when I played, you know, running just running was seen as S and C, you know, or fitness work as it probably was called back then. And I think over the years you see lots of people who are a little bit unsure of what exactly S and C is. 
you know, what is strength and conditioning work. And sometimes they're doing it potentially without even realizing they're doing it. So to your point, just basic movement is all part of that SNC model at a young age. So I'm just saying, um, can you give us some like age appropriate examples of things that coaches from grassroots up through the kind of transition phases up into maybe the more older levels of the game. Just what are some age-appropriate things that people could consider doing around SNC? Well, just before you get on to that, right, just something I used to speak to Mark about a good bit. And it's just something I feel strongly about, and I think every young child should actually do it. I feel like every young child should be taught how to run properly from an early age. Think about all the different running styles that are there and then the problems that it has as, as children are growing and playing the games. Doesn't I mean with, with the way that they run. I just think it's huge, and I think if players and children, generally speaking, whether it's true P in school or athletics or a, a, an outside coach or running coach that comes in and, and works with maybe a club or whatever, I think it, it makes such a difference to the players' development as they move up from seven, eight, nine, tens, and then onto the teenagers. You know, so that's something that sort of I've been talking about for a long time, and I'm actually sort of like I was thinking, geez, how much quicker or stronger, or maybe will I've had less injuries if I had had a better running style myself, with my posture being better. Those, those sort of things. So I think that's something that people should think about. You know, that's really interesting. Yeah. Is, is that, Willie, again, I'm, I'm not necessarily expert, so is that purely focusing on technique early in terms of... It's basically the running technique, yeah, it's all about their posture and their core and the way, the way that they actually run. So the run, if you look at, I remember looking at Ronaldo, you see Cristiano Ronaldo and he's he doing this, oh, it's true, uh, he's basically sprinting against, uh, I think it was some sort of Spanish 100-meter sprinter and they were doing, it was a whole range of different fitness tests and like Ronaldo was lightning quick, but he's got lateral. He's got a lateral running technique. Of course, when you see the when you see the sprinter, he's 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 much more uniform. He's up. He's straight. Now I know it's two different sports, and you can say, well, soccer is different to say, you know, hundred meter sprint or whatever. But like it was just pointed out about Ronaldo that like yeah, if he had a better running technique, as quick and as athletic as he was, if he had a walking like a proper running technique from the time he was younger, he'd be even quicker. Imagine that. You're 100% right, Willie, about the running technique because the amount of players we see at an older age, their techniques all over the place. I remember a couple of years back, we had a strength and conditioning coach analysing the players running. One of his comments was, that guy, he's a cruise ship waiting to happen. He actually commented on his running style that it's only a matter of time or a matter of months before his cruise ship goes purely because his running style wasn't corrected. Younger. And then even going back then with the likes of Jordan Henderson. Remember Alex Ferguson a few years ago didn't want to sign him because of his running style. He said he runs, he runs from his hips nearly, you know, if you ever see Jordan Henderson's style, it is a bit awkward looking. He seems to work on it. But that's obviously not getting it from a younger age, really concentrating on it. And you're 100% right and it needs to be addressed early, get the technique right. But you can yeah. imagine the difference in a player if you could teach them early the technique of running and their movement. When speed is so um, important in the modern game, like, I mean, the, just to get them to get those those twitch muscles or whatever muscles moving quicker. You know, I mean, could you imagine the difference at a young age if instead of always some of the, some of the practices we do, we got kids actually able to move and actually sprint better. What a difference it would be for a player. And that could be the difference between the moving forward. Don't I mean, what, say like if they're looking to progress their game, it could be the physical condition. Like I've worked with a few players, say I remember one or two young boys that worked down at Arkley United back a few years ago. And like they had really good football brains, but they were 17 or 18 at, 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 by the time I got a hold of them. And like the running techniques just weren't good enough. That they just weren't up to scratch. And like you're looking at them and you're trying to see how you can help them develop, but they just didn't have they just had they just never had it. So I mean from the time they're younger, obviously they were never taught. And they really took away from them. Don't I mean because they, they understood. Can you correct that running style later in life, do you think? Or is there a certain cut-off point that you reckon is a harder after? 
it's a good question. It's a good question. And I actually don't know because I start thinking, geez, if I, I wonder would I've been able to crack my rhythm style when I was in my 20s. I don't think I could. I think I was the way I was. I think it would be so hard to do because imagine in the middle of a game and like you're, you're walking on it maybe for six months and you're in the game and you're trying to focus on your running style. Like you're not going to do that. You're going to go. You're going to go back to type, aren't you? Doesn't mean in the middle of a game. Yeah. Your default. As soon as you got tired, your default. You go back to what you. I think so. Yeah. I think if it's not if it's not done early, I think there be there, there can be issues going forward. Now listen, I mean everyone has different running styles, and for a lot of people, it doesn't make any difference to them. As in. They can still get by, but I mean to get to the next level and maybe help prevent those injuries. I just think it's huge. That's that's really interesting stuff, and and I'll be honest, stuff I don't know a huge amount. You know, I always rely on the experts who I've worked with to kind of guide us in that regard. I suppose it's a little bit like we we often talk about players we might see at fifteen or sixteen, and you know we we'd often say, God, it's a pity we didn't get a hold of them when they were twelve or thirteen. You know, what I mean, in terms of betting in some of the technical stuff we'd like them to do. So I guess running's the same. The only sport I could think of off the top of my head where people do majorly deconstruct how they do things is potentially golf. You know, how often do you hear top golfers say they're changing their swing and they go and break it back down to its component parts and try and relearn it often with no better success than their original swing. I think sometimes it's just in the head. So it's, it's an interesting thing. Will. so then if, if you can, I ask you then around, you know, that age appropriate stuff. So, so you're trying to teach them how to run properly so, you know, at, at young ages, is it short distances? Does that distance increase as they get older? Or is it just the intensity of what you do increases? You know, what's yeah, your no, advice it, there? I mean, listen, age probably when you're walking safe from the 7 and 12 fields, it's all about short distances. I mean, they're just they're just not physically capable. Like the cardiovascular systems aren't capable for, for longer distance. So it has to be shorter and at a higher intensity. So you're gradually looking to increase the tempo. And then I suppose as time then goes on, then you'll increase then the distances but I mean when you're looking at say children from the ages of 7 to 12 I mean like I said to you like you're looking for say um, movement discovery and then what you're looking to do is you're looking to walk on their feet really do I mean because you know when you get a kid at 7 or 8 years of age a lot of times they'll be slower and cumbersome so you're trying to get them to understand the mechanics of their, of their body so I mean really simple exercises that they can do that they can walk on which will be considered S and C stuff like you know different types of hops skips jumps whether it be two-footed whether it be one-footed like a one a one-legged ladder of jump for example teaching them from an early age how to do a you know, deep squat do you know what i mean so get them on, on the major teaching points you know back straight your core is tight legs slightly wider than hip width apart knees and toes pointed forward engage your core squeeze your glutes do you know what i mean when contracting the same with a lunge. I'll tell you what's a brilliant one for kids as well, to, to walk under core strength. And it will be t- t- various planking positions, both low planks, high planks. And you can even play games. So you can have it in a fun sort of environment where you can have them doing different types of planking competitions or they're in teams. And they, so say, for example, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in a high plank and I have a ball at my hand and then my partner's facing me and just rolling the ball to your partner, do you know what I mean? And he's trying to catch it in one hand, roll it back, and trying to keep your body as still as you can. How many can you do without your, do you know what I mean? Your hips moving in a certain direction. Little things like that are brilliant for kids, you know? That, that that's a brilliant work. point, because I do think there is, like there can be negative connotations with other words associated with training. I think most people think S&C is hard, you know, that somehow you're going to be punishing them. You know what I mean? That it's mm-hmm. hard work to get you fitter. So why can't it be fun? Uh, to your point there, you're still doing your core work, but you're just introducing an element of fun and an element of competition. So yeah, I think that's a good point because lots of players, how often do you have players come up 
to training and the first question is are we running tonight because there's this negative connotation that running is somehow just something that they just have to do instead of enjoying doing it you know and realizing the benefits of it you know i mean for kids as well like things like you know um modified versions of hopscotch doesn't mean and then working on ladders starting off doing basic exercises and then making that incorporating them into the sessions as well i'm not saying if you have a session for one hour with a kid with, with a bunch of kids that you have to spend half an hour doing it. It might be you might do your warm up with the ball and then you might incorporate some fun S and C into it, whether it be hopscotch, whether it be doing different technical exercises with the ball, incorporating some hop skips and jumps in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then then doing your little planking competition and then taking it from there. Something as simple as that starting off. And that helps to develop the child's do you know what I mean? It helps develop their muscle activation, helps to develop their core, their posture. And then, you know, it'll help them when they're growing as well. Because you ever hear these growing pains that kids get, you know? So, you know, if you're if you're if you're working, say if you're if you're starting to do some squatting, basic squatting and basic lunging, even if it is only one or two sets starting off and then walking from there, that's all beneficial, you know, as they grow as they get older. Yeah, there, there's loads of fun games. The, the secret is to get them doing it at a young age when they don't re- realise that what they're actually doing. But an, an, another great way of uh, in, for strength and conditioning in younger children is, is multi-sports, different sports and activities. Rad, rather than just placing emphasis on one, which can lead to problems like before new repetitive motion injuries and, you know, and boredom, you know, like the fundamental skills, movement skills, agility are just so important at that age. And training sessions should be based around them and made made fun with, with some of the, the activities that you suggested there. There are so many you can do with strength conditioning. And I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been one for I wouldn't have thought it was as important years back. But now the way schools are and, and, and kids don't do as as much as we, we keep hearing this old chestnut, you know, they don't do what we used to do as kids, but they don't. You know, they're not out in the streets anymore. They're not running, jumping, skipping, jumping over walls, playing hopscotch. So we have to be wary of that and we have to try and incorporate that into 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 sessions. But it's difficult for grassroots coaches to do everything. That's they what I was saying. They can't coach running style. There's, there's, no, there's no grassroots coaches who can who can uh, coach running style. So I think the schools need to take a, a more active role because they're the professionals. Big time. I think that's a great point about the schools. Like, I mean, I even remember myself growing up in Fingers. Like, I mean, even out in the yard. Like, I mean, there was everything from skipping ropes to those hopscotches. And that all works and helps you to, helps your early age to, uh, with your with your whole movement and, and how you do things um, and, and those times th- I, I couldn't remember the time I'd ever seen anybody um, doing something like that even chasing like <laughs> I mean that works so many opportunities for you to kind of stop start sprint you know what I mean I mean and I couldn't remember the last time I've seen those kind of games or those things happening with kids and it's not like we're saying that oh back in the old days back in the old days there was reasons that those things happened and they were encouraged historically it was accepted that strength training you should be held back until they reached adolescence you know um, it was considered inappropriate but i think i think the view has shifted somewhat you know with, with science and data you know and all the studies that you do and it, it suggests that it, it should form some part or integral part of of training but not not a scaled down adult version of strength and conditioning and that's that's the problem you don't want people uh, kids lifting weights you know or well, just on that, Mick. Just on that, Mick. Because do you think sometimes there's a rush for parents or kids or coaches to to get their kids to go into a gym and start using weights and doing these without actually well, forgetting that the knowledge part and not understanding that? But it, it, what age do you think it's probably acceptable? Will you will you be able to answer that better than me? Dean, I was just saying, gym workshops with weights shouldn't be done no earlier than sixteen. That's that's sort of the rule of thumb and has been. Now, different people might argue with that. Don't mean everyone has an opinion. Do you know what I mean? 
was trying to get this well, this story says this and this story says that. My own belief is that, like, Jim Morgan will wait until the age of 16 is a no-no. Because, yeah, it can have, it can stunt growth, it can have, it can have negative effects, and they don't need to be doing it any younger than that because they're still growing as well, the other sort of way. So, it shouldn't be heavy load. Now, if you look at the likes of Leinster Ruby and different Ruby schools, they'd have to, they could have students in the gym at 13 and 14 and using the supplements and all the rest of it, like, you know, and that has, that's a whole other argument, do you know what I mean? So, what's the negative effects of, say, taking creatine at 14 and like your kidneys and your liver? Do you know sort of way? Is it, is it easy to break down? Are you meant to do it in cycles? But that's a whole other story. So in my in my rule of thumb, anyway, I never had that went to gym under sixteen, and that's just me with my football background. But yeah. then oh, yeah. sports, the likes of rugby might say different. Do that sort of way. So listen, I think that's very interesting. There's that's enough effort done with, with using your body weight at, at at that age before you go into a gym. And you're right. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, between six and twelve, it should be all about coordination, range of movement. Definitely, 100%. And leading all that into technical work on the ball stuff, don't I mean? Because at the end of the day, you're trying to promote, you know what I mean, a, a streamlined athlete. Like, don't I mean? You're looking to promote speed. You're looking to promote power, good core strength. Don't sort of like, that's what you're looking for in the game of football. So, like, going in, like, they don't need to be doing weights. I mean, even an example, obviously, there's been no gyms open throughout COVID. So, we've been working remotely. So, we did up a gym program for the for the Bows Under-19 squad. And it's a, it's a home-based workout. It's all bodyweight exercises. And it's absolutely brilliant. And it hits all the major muscle groups that needs to be hit. And the lads do feel it. And then on a Saturday morning, then, I do a high-intensity circuit class. So it's like a high-intensity circuit class sort of turned on its head. It's all bodyweight exercises. So you do your warm-up for 10 or 15 minutes and your dynamic stretch and your little bit of foam rolling and core. And then what I used to do with, uh, with them was I do, say, four different exercises, 45 seconds each, which is which leads to a total of three minutes with 30 seconds rest. So basically, you're walking flat out for three minutes and then you get 30 seconds rest and you do three sets of that. So an example of four exercises I used to do would be things like power lunges. So basically, you you start in the lunge, and then you're exploding up in the air, and then you're landing on on the opposite leg. Do you know what I mean? So you're doing that for 45 seconds. Things like uh, frog jumps. You're probably thinking, what the hell are these things? They're all body weight exercise, all looking to promote fast twitch fibers to help speed and power, and then general general um, endurance. So they'd be two exercises. You can do wide grip press ups with them. So I do things called power press-ups where they're pushing themselves off the ground and back down. And then a thing called ski abs. It's basically when you're down, it's another bodyweight exercise. When you're jumping, so you're in a plank position, but your two legs are tucked in like it's in a burpee. And you're just jumping from side to side. Looks easy. When the lads saw me doing this, oh, what is this headbanger doing? So after the first session, the amount of messages I got, they were drowned in sweat. And they texted me the next day, going, my legs are absolutely in bits. And these had to be in the gym a lot. So you can do an awful lot, you know what I mean, and gather markets and policy in the sessions. You can do an awful lot at home as a as what, 16, 17, 18, 19 year old as well. It doesn't just have to be younger ages. Do you know? Listen, I've seen those sessions. They're hard and they're excellent. Can I can I just ask you, Will, in terms of um, for people out there who wonder about, you know, say, f- pre-season famously, people talk about, oh, we do fitness tests. So like, when are they appropriate, right? And then if you are doing some kind of assessment of your player's condition, you know, what is appropriate to do? What's appropriate to measure? If you're talking about, say, I suppose from 16s up, it's a bit different from 16s down, isn't it? But from, say, 16s up, I, I am not a believer in long distance running. Anyway, I, I hated it. I think the longest I ever ran in my life, I think I did 110k in my whole life. Just did not buy into it at all. And in pre-season, well, the longest run that I ever did, I think, was maybe four minutes. I used to do a lot of interval training. 
So you do maybe, when you're looking to build your base, because if you look at the game of soccer, it's all short, sharp, bursts over the course, 5, 10, 15, 20 metre sprints over the course of 90 plus minutes. So the longest run I ever did was maybe four minutes on, four minutes off. You might do four or five of those. So you're, you're always running at your max. And that'd be an absolute blowout. You'd like you blow, nearly blow a head gasket doing that, even though it doesn't sound that bad. But when you're running as hard as you can for four minutes, that's a long time. Um, so I suppose if you're talking about pre-season, well, I mean, when you look at what we did say last season there, the longest they did was a, a five-minute max test where they had to, we had to measure how far they could run in five minutes. That was the longest thing that we did with our team last year. We did stuff then like a, 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 10 meter, a, a standing 10-meter sprint. Then there was a 10-meter sort of shuttle agility run that they did. And then they did maybe, I think, a press-up test and one or two core tests. And that's how we measured our lads. That'll sort of be, you know, specific enough, you know. Um, but you don't have to be that specific. When I was down in Mark, we used to, you know, we used to do a, a, 1K run, a, a 1K test. So basically, it was basically running up and down the pitch 10 times in your college of time. That was it. That was that was 1,000 metres of 1K. That's a simple way of doing it. You can do the likes of the, the bleed test, but... The bleed test is fine, but for me, that's sort of gone now, and it's, it's been replaced by this thing called an, an intermittent yo-yo test, which is more football specific. So basically, you start, you know, in a box at, at the at the line, and basically every time that the you know the recording beeps, you have to run twenty meters and back, and then you wait for ten seconds, and it gradually gets quicker and quicker and quicker. So it's it's more football specific, where it stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, rather than continuous running the whole time. Yeah, so yeah, that, yeah. That, that's a good way of testing as well. I like that test. I think that's a really good test. I think it's much more specific to our game. It's called an intermittent yo-yo test. So if anyone doesn't know what it is, you can just jump onto Google or YouTube and have a quick look at it. That's a good way of testing players. At younger ages, I can actually never remember being te- fitness tested when I was 11, 12, 13 years of age myself. I don't know if any of can remember being te- fitness tested. Don't know if I agree with it or if you need it. Maybe at national league level, yeah, but I wouldn't be big for it now myself. If, it, if you're a grassroots, you wouldn't be. Fitness <laughs> test back in the 90s. Yeah, they just pointed a bright head and said, right, get up and back down there in 20 minutes or whatever it was. Jesus, ridiculous stuff. Really, that's really interesting. Yeah. Did any of us ever do fitness testing with younger age groups before? Like as in sort of 11s, 12s, 13s? No. Yeah, we, 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 yeah, but it wasn't so much as, as about the test itself, really. It was more about just the introducing to the concept of, of testing, you know. Okay. And it, it would be, again, it would be very, very simple things like that, you know. And uh, probably a lot of it probably would be frowned upon nowadays um, as regards weighing children, you know, and uh, their height. But um, because you, you do have smaller kids and you have heavier kids, you know, but the, yeah. the, actual, the actual physical test was the kids loved seeing how fast they could run. And it, it, it did encourage them to do a little bit at home, you know, okay. they will be faster the next time. I said we can run a little bit longer the next time. But what, the one we, we, we probably concentrated more on at, at the younger age was the, the agility test and the flexibility, measuring how far, you know, the sit and reach box. Just, yeah. to try and get, just to try and get them to do some some stretches at home, at home, you know, to just to, to stay flexible and stay stay mobile. Yeah, highlighting for them, Mick, wasn't it? It's was just really highlighting their yes, yeah, yeah, really yeah. make them work, yeah. give them good absolutely. ideas and techniques to start working on. Yeah. But that's yeah. absolutely brilliant. That's, yeah. that's the yeah, issue. Concept, you know. Yeah, make that's 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 brilliant. That's exactly what it should be. You see, I've never worked with kids that age. The youngest I've worked is fifteen, so Jews are brave. That's the youngest I've ever worked with. Apart from that, I've just worked all older. So I didn't really know. But I tell you, just in my notes here as well, and you've hit the nail on the head there. You talk about stretching. Oh my God, 
how important is it, especially at those younger ages when they're growing? Do you know what I mean? When the muscles are continuously growing and like different growth spurts and, you know, different things going on with their body, puberty and all the rest of it. Like stretching is it's vital for everybody, but like especially at that age to understand it and use it as part of a warm-up and a cool down. It's just so, so important, isn't it? And I think it's really undervalued by players and coaches. And I think you know there should it should be more there should be more, it should be structured into everybody's. You know what I mean? You, you know, you even see our lads in that when they're doing, yeah, you have to get at them even for the warm. Do your stretching properly. Hold these stretches part of warm for eight to ten seconds and no more. And then afterwards, you have to keep at them as well. Like often sessions might be say ten minutes left, and Gavin will give the lads ten minutes to make sure that they stretch properly after the cool. That make sure you do it. The boys are walking off the pitch three minutes later and Gav's out with the stick, get back out to that pitch and do your stretching properly. And he's he's on the money too. Like do you know what I mean? So it's the easiest it's the easiest part of, of a physical training, I believe. But it's the most neglected. And and players for some reason or another hate it. They hate like, it. you don't generally have them you most of the stretching you're doing, you are just standing on the same spot. You know, and you're moving a certain body part. But it's, I don't know whether it's an attitude or whether they, we just, we're failing to stress how important it is uh, to players. I don't think they see the importance of it. Do you know what I mean? Young lads, do you know what I mean? They can when when you're young you. and flexible, you kind of think to yourself, well, I don't need to stretch. I'm, I'm, I'm bendy and I'm flexible and I'm agile. And it, it's only, as you said, it's to maintain that. And as you grow older, you become less flexible and more stiff and, and those good habits will help you. I, I know one friend of mine who's in his, he's certainly in his 60s now and he's done martial arts all his life. You want to see how flexible this lad is. He has just stretched every day of his life as part of his discipline and he swears by it, absolutely swears by it in terms of how he is now physically. So yeah, look, it's a really interesting thing. Will, could I could I ask you in the interest of time, so as an SNC guy, obviously as a as a UFA qualified coach, you're you're very clearly knowledgeable on the football side, but just with your SNC hat on, as a coach, as you're looking at players, how do you regard, how do you judge if players are fit? You know what I mean? You know, when you first look at a group, what are you looking for? The first thing I suppose is their body composition. That's the first thing that you're going to see. So all that means is basically how much weight they carry, like how much body fat they carry. You can sort of get a look at them, you know, by looking at them, what sort of muscle mass that they're carrying as well. You know, by the walk of people as well, a lot of times what sort of condition that they're in. Do you know what I mean? Like, do they have a daisy walk? And I know that sounds silly, but you can you can see that. I can see that through people straight away. That's the first thing to look for in people. I mean, we have so I've coached a lot of lads in the League of Ireland, and like their technique when it comes to say a basic bodyweight squat as part of warm up is horrendous. Do you know what I mean? And the same with the lunge, the same with some of the basic fundamental movements that you need for strength and conditioning. So many people have never been taught properly on it. So I'd be able to from looking at people, you'd be able to see it from the walk, and then from getting to do basic exercise, you can see straight away. And then obviously you've got different types of fitness too. You've got your player that can. Run all day, do you know what I mean? Middle of the park, number six. Not lightning quick, not terribly slow, sort of middle of the road. Then you have your nippy winger. You have a really powerful centre back who's really good in the air and has a good spring, has a good leap, strong in the tackle and strong core. Be done. So you've got different types of players that that have different traits. And like I suppose this just comes from experience. You just sort of you just notice things from being in the game for so long, you know, but maybe some of the first things that I'd notice. Now, really, you mentioned the body squat, the, the, the body squat with just using the body weight. Yeah. Can you, you imagine that if, if, and this goes back to the range of movement exercises at a young age, that if, if you are 15, 16, 17, and you can't do a body squat correctly, 
with your own weight and you're going into the gym, you're going to destroy yourself. 100% Mick, unreal. That's why even when we were with uh, up in uh, Blanche last year, myself and Paul McGuire used to try to get in with the players as much as we can and you'd stay with them and you'd be sort of watching them and trying to monitor, monitor them and make sure they're doing it right because even guys that are in the gym, some of their techniques and the exercises just are not good at all. And then that does cause hassle down the line in the form of different injuries. And then you're missing maybe one or two of your better players for four or six weeks because if after doing a lateral medial ligament from squatting around in the gym or deadlifting or something like that, you know? So it's it's, abs- it's, it's brutal, really. But I suppose there needs to be a little bit more education than, I suppose, you know, for coaches at younger ages to help these players do that. Because, you know what I mean? To be fair, a lot of grassroots coaches are only... Our only parents, they're doing their best, they're putting the time and absolutely brilliant at what they do. But but their, I suppose, knowledge only goes so far as well. So they need help as well, that sort of way. So listen, that's that's really interesting stuff. Can I can I just finish with just talking a little bit about the load that people do throughout the week, Will? So we we often complain about our lack of contact time and you know, we're trying to monitor what we do with the players in the time that we have them. So that could be four or five days a week. But there's times when they're not with us. So one, what's the merit of tracking what they're doing when they're not with you? And then two, what's the merit of using the likes of your GPS vests just to track what people are actually doing in terms of their session load throughout the week? Well, first things first, believe it or not, the most important part of training is the recovery and rest. So you have to have rest days as well. It doesn't mean you have to have at least one full day off. And that's where the likes of your nutrition and your hydration and your rest uh, do I mean that that all come and your sleep that all comes in as well and it's absolutely vital. So I mean, if you're typically training, say I don't know, if you're coaching, say an under sixteen team, right, DDSL uh, team, and you train that you're training on a Tuesday and Thursday, and then you play a game on a Saturday. I suppose you see different programs will be given to players at different times of the year. So a preseason program will be sort of heavy loading where they're working on, on sort of first size working on their size, so building muscle mass and their strength, and then it'll start to move to power, and then you'll have maintenance phases then throughout the season. So say if you're in season, and you're you're on the pitch on the Tuesday and Thursday, you can do gym sessions on a Monday and Wednesday, because it's only maintenance phases. So you'd be in the gym Monday, pitch Tuesday, gym Wednesday, pitch Thursday, recover Friday and stretch, you're getting ready for your game on Saturday, and then recovery on Sunday. And then you're back and you do it again. Just in terms of when they are in with you then, Will, you know, is there merit in using the likes of GPS vests just to track the, the loads? Because different players can obviously do different loads depending on what they're doing throughout the week. It's big time. That's so, it's so, so important. Like tracking loads is huge. So seeing what distances players are running in games and seeing, actually seeing what they're doing in training as well. And then, you know, like, you know, you, you can get a sense then by by talking to um, the GPS trackers to see exactly um, what they need to do then on the days off. So if a player's only done, say, I don't know, said has only done 5K in the game, but yet two of your central midfield players then have done, say, 11K each, it's important then that you understand that if that's on a Saturday and then they're off on a Sunday, that when they come back in on the Monday, you have to be mindful of that when you're tailoring sessions and you're, you know what I mean? you're doing different exercises within your session. So there's huge merit in it. But you see, not a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of teams out there that, they don't have it. They don't. They don't know because they don't have GPS vests. So they're just going off their, I suppose, to go instinct and their eye, really, aren't they? It's it, like it's tricky in the League of Ireland. Yeah, most of the clubs now have these sort of luxuries. That's what they are. But I mean, for the for the general for the general public and general you know coaches and teams, 
they don't have that. So it is a tricky one. You sort of, you know, anyway, the more experienced the coach is, they know their players. And if players are open and honest and they communicate well, they'll come and they'll tell you if they're tired. So then you'll know. Interesting point. I, th- I think it's like everything else, you know, you're right there, but I understand that not every team has the luxury of an SNC expert but it is becoming really clear that it's such an important part of development. So even at the basic and young ages, you, you need to get a basic understanding of what you should or shouldn't be doing and then build appropriately because it is so important. Like the play, thankfully, you look at the players now, they're a hell of a lot fitter than they were 10, 15 years ago. They, they, the players themselves are more educated in terms of how they look after themselves on and off the pitch. So it's it's just such a really important area when you're when you're we often talk about those marginal gains and and small you know incremental developments. SNC is such a huge area where you can improve stuff with some some decent knowledge. So yeah, look, uh, you've covered some unbelievable stuff there, Will. Um, we could talk about it for a long time, and uh, we're very lucky to have somebody like you working with us. You know, in terms of giving us that advice about what we should and shouldn't do. So look, really appreciate that. I believe we got through a whole section on SNC without mentioning how many laps you need to do with a pitch at pre-season. Don't believe, don't believe in that. Never believed in that. That's- Mark, Mark, do you want to give us your take on laps? I think about, I think till they puke. That's the kind of that's kind of the barometer you should. I, I had a coach many years ago who believed in that philosophy. And uh, do you know, do you know what? A lot of people believe in that philosophy up until I'd say fairly recent, and that is gone soft. Uh, that's what's wrong. It's gone. There's still a few of them no. in the league of no. Ireland, but <laughs> there's still plenty of them lads around. Lads, don't, don't be fooled. You never run a player to get a good skill. That's yeah. it, Michael. Run them no, to it's not. At six, years, at six years of age, should they puke? <laughs> Just another thing, lads, we, we should have touched on as well in the conditioning is the acceleration and deceleration. Do you know how important yeah. that deceleration is? Like, uh, that's my that's my chestnut, all right, Paul. Agree 100%. Deceleration. But the first the first time I seen that, lads, was was five or six years ago. I said to Mick, I was over in Liverpool in the academy. Right. And um, I got to see the under 16s training, so I was up close with them. So basically, the coach set up the players on the end line in twos and did a count probably every 10, 15 yards. It was basically just into his working on the, on the call to go sprint as hard as you can to that line and try and stop as quick as you can as sudden in that posture for a split second and then jog on which makes perfect sense now because all football's about stopping and turning and twisting as quick as you can yeah. as opposed to us years ago when we were sprinting told not to pull up too soon you to pull something like so how to, the times have changed now where deceleration is the big thing yeah it's huge I got telling some of my old coaches I need to work on my deceleration. They were like, "You can't go any slower, team." Just you know what I mean. <laughs> you, have to, you have to accelerate first, Gav, to decelerate. <laughs> the, the wall around the Carlisle grounds helped you decelerate. Yeah. Stop going looking out the gate. Many's the day I slid into it, mate, on my hole from about fifteen feet away. <laughs> I used to have us in Bray running. I used to run from the clubhouse down the seafront, up the Sudden Cross, and back down the Bog Hall Road, and back to the club. And one of the coaches saw As a warm-up. I remember like, actually when I was at Bray years ago, back in 2000, whatever it was. Do you remember, I think, Paul, you were there as well. Remember Devo got us to run down the seafront part of the pre-season and up yeah. over Brayhead and went to Greystones. Yeah, I was there for that, yeah. Ran to Greystones and back. That was part of the pre-season. Middle of January, running the seafront and Bray, sprinting up and down the seafront. Lost up. Good time. Couldn't pass the ball 10 yards. Fit as fuck. Come here, you went to the army camp, Willie Down, and Town army camp. Yeah. Army and of small training. And Come here, I'm not joking you again, right? I remember one of the exercises. Just have guns. We're, no. We had we're, tractor tires uh, over our heads. It was the closest we had. This is a true story, right? Um, 
this went on all day from first life until last life, right? So when we started off and around, like you did an actual army assault course where you're climbing over things and going through things and all that, and he's like, right, that's the warm up done. And we were all bollocks after about 20 minutes, right? He goes, right, come on, jump here. We arrived down to like a landing strip, like where an airplane come in. He says, Do you see the first yellow line? I was like, Yeah, just about. Do you see the second one? No. Well, he goes, You're going to the fucking third one. He goes, Harry, <laughs> sprint down there in your groups and bring back the sandbags, right? And we all had to go down in their groups, all part of a team bonding thing. And I tell you, it was about a fucking three mile run down to get these sandbags, then come back again. Drop them there. He says, Right, with me, let's go. And it was a 5K jog then through the woods. And we arrived on the beach. Remember that, Pop? Yeah, yeah. And then he says, right, in twos, into the water. The depths of winter, waves come up over our heads, and he had us in the water. Like, back and, and he had to push each other off. This is true. Got out, of the, got out of the sea, and then he had us up and down these dunes, sprinting like a lunatic. And then we had to finish then with a 5K run back to the base <laughs> for lunch. There was lads dropping off like it was, I don't know, like, like you're out in fucking, I don't know, the Middle East somewhere, like lads dropping their calves and bad backs. And they peaked in the first game. Right? Yeah. We got they a draw. Won. They mightn't have won anything, but they could kill they could kill a player for 20 yards. Well, <laughs> in any jungle in the world we get out. That's about it. That was about 15 years ago, and that's the typical typical of the stuff we used to do for pre-season. That's no joke. Mad, isn't it? Remember them Union Jack runs, Willie? Do you remember that? The Union Jack run, basically. Collins in line with the Union Jack shape, and you were in and out. It was harder than any bleed test. Remember fucking doing them? Oh, really good. Every episode, we try to bring guests on to offer different perspectives on the world of sport, coaching. And this week, we're delighted to have Claire Walsh on as our guest. Claire is an Irish freediver. She's a constant singer, by her own admission, and an experienced sea swimmer. She can hold her breath for six minutes. That's the length of Bohemian Rhapsody. We're delighted that she joins us now. You're very welcome to the pod, Claire. So thanks for coming on the pod, Claire. It's great to speak to you. Uh, we're really excited to learn more about who you are and your sport. Uh, we've never, I can safely say, I've never met a freediver before. Um, mm-hmm. So really, really looking forward to our chat. And thanks so much for having me on. I'm delighted. Great. Brilliant to have you on, Claire. Again, I suppose my, my interpretation of freediving is jumping off a, and doing a bomb into a pool. That's about as close as I ever got to it um, as a kid. But I, I'm just absolutely intrigued for people who wouldn't have a clue about your sport. Tell me exactly what is a freediver, please. So uh, the sport of, it's funny because most people say, oh, you freedive, well, deadly. So you jump off those cliffs into water. It's like, no, I'm terrified of heights. That's not what it is. Or uh, when I first told mum I was going to do a freedive course, she said, oh, brilliant you won't have to you won't have to pay for your scuba lessons anymore like, no, no that's not what it is either so freediving essentially is the sport of holding your breath underwater and there's lots of different disciplines and way that's measured so it's measured in time so literally lying flat on the surface of the water holding your breath and seeing how long you can go for so that's one the second one is in distance and that's done in the pool so you'll go in, in meters, so whatever, that's 100, 200 meters. And then the last dis, uh, set of disciplines is around depth. And I think, well, I know for me, that's kind of where my passion really, really lies. So very often people will say, wow, you can hold your breath for almost six minutes. And I'm like, yeah, no, that is cool. <laughs> but when someone tells me, tells me their depth personal bests, that's right. when I get really excited. So let me get this right. So, sorry, so. Well, 
that's the, I've seen some, I've done some research because I, I, I just had to get my head around it. So the one where depth, is that the one where sometimes you see the kind of the rope that you could, that people use yeah. as, as a guide to see how far they're going down? And then the other one is, is that actually swimming in the pool for lengths or is that just? So the different depth disciplines, one, you're, you're spot on. Um, so you'll always have the rope there as a guideline and you're actually attached to the rope with a lanyard. So one of them is called free immersion and you pull down on the rope um, and you'll announce a depth. You'll, so you'll yeah. say, today I'm going to 50, 60, 70 meters. And they set the depth at that point. And you either make it down or you don't. And then there's another one where you go down using long fins. So you kick down another one with a mono fin. So instead of two, you've one. And it looks like a, a mermaid. Really powerful mermaid. It's incredible. And then there's another one called no fins, wow. which is what it does, what it says in the tin. It's, it's a form of breaststroke. And probably that would be, I guess, the most pure form of free diving. And in my opinion, the hardest. Amazing amazing that's, that's just incredible I, like i've learned so much more in the last minute than i do from all the research <laughs> i've done online that is just but that i can't I, i'm going to talk to you about depth in a minute in terms of your mm -hmm. own records right yeah. but you mentioned there I, I can't get my head around this you mentioned there you can hold your breath for six minutes 559 that, that's six kind of well that, that's just, that i I'm, I'm actually struggling to understand i'm going i'm going to start a stopwatch now right now as i'm talking to you okay and you you can hold your breath for six minutes so one how's that possible and two, talk to me. I really was intrigued when I started to read about on your page about the art of breeding. I, I think it's something we totally underestimate in terms of the power of, of being able to control it. And so you might just talk to us a little bit about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, in one way, by, by calling it the art of breathing, we're kind of holding it up there as something that's elusive that only some of us can do. But, you know, all of us can and do breathe, I suppose, what we're talking about with art, art of breathing or conscious breathing or breath work or any of those terms is about bringing an awareness to your breath and using it to, I don't know, um, uh, generate energy to calm the nervous system, to connect with your surroundings. You know, there are so, so many benefits. We could have a full podcast on that, you know, in itself. Brilliant. How long did you get? <laughs> no keep going that's You're only no, that's only one holding. minute that's one minute 10 seconds <laughs> oh i thought you were holding the whole time no no i'm i'm, I'm just seeing you keep talking and i'm going to tell people with six minutes is up this is mental I, I i don't think i can hold my breath for more than about a minute i, I haven't tried I in a while but i can't stay quiet for two minutes the scale i use usually is the song bohemian rhapsody so that's yeah the wow. song. and i love uh like i've been using that for a while a friend came up with that explain actually. that to me explain that to me again because that's intriguing tell me tell me what you mean by that so the full the full length of bohemian rhapsody i think is five minutes 55 seconds so right. i can hold my breath for the full length of that song and um i remember my brother-in-law texted me it wasn't too long ago you know he, he's seen me dive he, he kind of knows the drill he messaged me and he said bohemian rhapsody has just come on the radio i've showered i had a shave i made my porridge and i'm just out the door the song's still going you know <laughs> so what you can cram into that amount of time is pretty uh it's, oh, it's, it's bizarre like we're, we're still talking now and it's only two minutes 20 seconds since i hit the stopwatch and, and you, you know so, so keep going this is mental so tell me I, i'm just curious is there any 
potential negative downside, even health wise, of, of holding your breath that long, you know, regularly? Or, or what do you do to counteract that? Um, you know, so there, of course, there are studies kind of that show may or may not, you know, and, and free diving is such a relatively new sport. It's been around right. for years and years and years as a tradition. But as a sport, it's relatively new. Yeah, like I suppose, you know, right now I couldn't hold my breath for six minutes. It takes time, it takes practice. Yeah. You need to be really conscious of what you put into your body, you know, what you've eaten, um, what you drink, the amount of sleep, mood, you know, everything affects it so much. And I think for me, um, for years, I was advised or recommended or encouraged to try, to try things like yoga or mindfulness, you know, to really connect in, yeah. create an awareness and so on. And holding my breath, lying still in water was I think the first time I really experienced what that is like. And if you think about how often we sit and we breathe without a phone in our hand, without music on, without TV, or without some sort of noise in the background to distract us, we are just there with our thoughts, sensations, minds, whatever it is. We don't do it. Yeah. We don't do it at all. And certainly for me, like I get really uncomfortable. I want to scroll or I want to check yeah. or I want to start doing. Yeah. Um, but this is the complete opposite. This is, you know, staying with those thoughts, trying to find an element of comfort in it because there is physical discomfort, but more so there's mental discomfort. Yeah. Um, so it's a really good litmus test, I think, for checking in with yourself, see how you're doing and what you need to work on. That's probably the most important one. That, that's interesting. That's, that's so do you, yeah, do you find when you're doing it that you're thinking or you're trying not to think? What well, you know, I again, I, I I'm really curious about this. It's fascinating. Like just for our listeners, we're at four and a half minutes on the stopwatch. Okay, we're still talking. This is crazy. So yeah, do do you think when you're doing it or not think, or, or is it a mixture of both? I, I don't know. Mixture of both. You know, it really depends on the thoughts. And again, that's, you know, I teach, I suppose, their breathing awareness classes and I use breath hold as a way to explore that. But one of the main parts of that is to figure out what do you say to yourself when you're uncomfortable? You know, what are your thoughts? So if those thoughts are, okay, Claire, I want you to relax your shoulders a little bit more and want you to soften a bit more, they're fine. If the thoughts are, offer. Sex, say Claire, you're doing rubbish today. Um, you should have tried a little bit harder. If only you had, if those, if that's the way your thoughts are going, they're not helpful. I mean, yeah. it's really a place for them. So I suppose it really is. We we talk a lot to our players about mental strength and how to visualize yeah. and stuff like that. I, I think breathing is something we all don't understand enough as coaches, and certainly something we could tap into more in terms of that calming and focusing and it's amazing it's amazing I was, gonna, I was actually just going to touch i was really i was very interested to listen to you there claire um and i got back to cristiano ronaldo right and i watch when ronaldo and i remember watching this about three years ago someone actually put it up on twitter his breathing exercises when he's going to take a set piece a free kick or a penalty or something and you'll see him composing himself deep breaths in and I've, i remember speaking to a couple of players about that like about you have to be kind of in the moment that's when you get great clarity and uh, over the last year of lockdown i've I've noticed even on Instagram, more and more people now looking for ways of finding peace and calm. But that's that's amazing. So the question I have to you, how do you train for that? So how do you train to be a free diver? And how do you train for that kind of breathing? Can I just jump in for one sec, right? That's six minutes there. That's mental. Since we hit the stopwatch, that's six minutes and you can hold your breath that long. I'm, 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 I take oh, my, right. my hat off to you, my invisible hat. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mark, excuse no, me. No, 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 no. I think that, that's, that's, like, that's just shows the power 
of the human body if you have a clear mindset or yeah. if you have a focused mindset. Or maybe I'm wrong. Tell me, am I, am I explaining that wrong? Completely. And, and you know what you said about, you know, Ronaldo and, and his breathing. I actually got a video yesterday during the match. I was in England and my nephew is two years old and he was practicing his kick. He was doing a Johnny Sexton, as he calls it. And he lined up the ball, uh, took a couple of steps back, you know, moved to the side a bit. And then he took a breath. And, you know, proud auntie just nearly erupted. I didn't care that his actual kick was crap, but he stopped. <laughs> and you could see just his little chest, one breath, settle and go. It was like, you know, we all think, you know, he's absolutely amazing. Uh, but that was singularly one of my proudest moments, you know, as an auntie, just to see, okay, he's copying, he's mimicking what he sees. Yeah. But there's somewhere in his little body, his little mind that knows you know, he's a two-year-old, he's a frantic toddler. He needed to just compose. I think <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. Um, and yeah, so, you know, translating into, you know, adult versions of that, you know, we spend so much time busy. And even if that busy is lying on the couch watching Netflix, wondering what I have for dinner, should I get a takeaway? No, I probably shouldn't. Should I be cooking? What have I got in the fridge? There's still an element of busyness, even if we're inactive. And you know, you know, I don't do it enough. I'm aware of it, but I don't do it enough. But it's when you actually uh, use your breathing to check in a little bit more. Yeah. Things just become clearer, more honest. You might not like what you hear, um, <laughs> but you'll definitely be guided a lot more towards what you what you could be doing, better choices. And I think, you know, creating that little bit of a, you know, I call it almost like a protective bubble around expectations, around judgments, around the shoulds of what you should and shouldn't be doing. It just gives you a little bit of space to act a little bit more, um, not authentically, I hate that word, um, a little bit more truer, I suppose. Right. How do you train for that? How, how do you train in that, to get to that breathing of being able to hold your breath for six minutes or, or being able to factor in some time to check in? And you know, Because I'm really keen to understand about how you take and you won't probably be able to do this in the pod. How we get those lessons that you do to comp- to do monumental feats of six minutes and go down that depth to someone on a football pitch or rugby pitch or whatever to say, right, it's like that matrix moment that they seem to slow down when everybody else is manic, mm-hmm. but they can see more. So, Breeden, how do you train for that? So, I suppose it's 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 the opposite how I would train for a sport um, as opposed to, you know, right now I'm going to the gym for one, two, three hours, whatever it is. And then I'm going to the pitch or pool or whatever it is, you know, there's almost set times to do that. And then of course, throughout the rest of the day, you're supplementing that by food, mobility, physio, whatever it is. Breathing to me, it's a little bit more, you know, uh, uh, more and often. And you need to, you need to develop those skills. You need to build those habits when things aren't stressful. To be able to switch into them when you need it, you need to be able to practice them chilled out on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning at whatever, six, half six, when things are calm, when they're quiet. That's when you build your routine. That's when you uh, build those practices in your body so that when things are a bit more stressful, if you are about to do a competition dive, if you're about to take a free kick, whatever it is, you already have the habit. You already know how to do this. You already know how to switch into that moment, how to, into that mode. And take the relaxation from it, if that makes sense. Oh, 100%. There's lessons there for Class. coaches, sports people, life in general. Life. Just yeah. how to slow down. And um, No, I really like that. Um, you might just tell us, Claire, so we're, we're, we're very new to understanding your sport. 
um, which is brilliant. And it's been fascinating already. So I'm, I'm really pleased to be chatting. But we talk to our guests often about the challenges within their own field. So, you know, what are the challenges that, that you currently face in, in relation to your own sport currently? I'm in Ireland. <laughs> I'm in Ireland. That's, that's, I think, the crux of it right now. I'm in right. Ireland. I can't travel to train. Okay. That's the and, and, and then typically, you where would you be traveling to? or? Yeah, so I, I would train quite a lot in Dahab, um, which is in Sinai in Egypt. Um, I train there a lot. Um, I would be traveling to competitions. Um, there are no pools open here. Um, I suppose there's a little bit... Of, we don't... How do I put this? We don't particularly have a strong competitive freediving community in Ireland. We do have uh, lots of people who freedive. And, you know, freediving is like running. You know, I can run to my car. I'm still running. I just might yeah, be yeah. good at it. And I might be running very far, you know. And freediving, anyone who leaves the surface and holds their breath for a couple of seconds, they're freediving. And we have, we're an island. So we have lots of opportunities to do that. But that's quite different to training for the competitive aspect of the sport, training depth. And to do that, we do need warmer waters. Uh, we need calmer conditions and uh, access to depth. So okay. um, I train in the blue hole. Uh, I get in. <laughs> I walk about two meters. And then there's a drop off and it goes to 93 meters. So I continue a small swim out to my dive spot. Um, you know, and I'm there. So there's no boat. There is no... Oh, what way will the current be today? It's so sheltered and it's, it, it's quite idyllic in terms of free diving. I've got to be honest, it sounds really dangerous to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's magical. It is. You, you, you mentioned the depth there. That's, that's interesting. What, so what, what is, how far have you gone down? What's your record held? Uh, so my personal best or PB is 59 meters. Wow. Um, sixes just don't seem to be <laughs> a good number for me. I'm 559 breath hold, 59 meters. Uh, um, yeah, 59 meters. I, I did get out to Egypt uh, last October. Actually, I got stuck out there for a month longer. That was awful. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was dreadful. <laughs> but I, I came back just before Christmas. And that was quite a different training trip. Um, just, you know, when we're talking about how do you train. So, you know, during lockdown, I was trying to replicate exercises. Um, I was trying to keep in the mindset. And, you know, I just felt frustrated. I felt, you know, I was losing my skills that I'd never be able to and so on. Yeah. And I got out there and it was such a bonus. Like I, I booked my flight, I think, whatever, three, four days beforehand, went and got the PCR test the next day, packed my bags, and then the following day I was gone. So it all happened yeah. quite quickly. It was such a bonus. Yeah. So when I did get out there, it was totally different. I completely let go of expectations. It was just such a bonus trip. I did not think I would get to train in 2020. So Brilliant. I was just there to enjoy and the difference that had on my diving was unbelievable. And I thought back, I was like, Claire, you've been beating yourself up from March to right on to October. Jesus, like you could have saved yourself so much pain and stress. Like you're doing it. You're fine. Yeah. You got and, it. And on reflection, did you just feel that you were just more relaxed when you let go of that expectation? So absolutely my my coach um he coached me when i was i was um preparing for the world championships so he hadn't seen me for a year or so um i was like there's a huge difference in you and i said do, do you know what it is and kind of we're, we're talking about it and i said i think i'm just kinder to myself yeah yeah 
um, and that kind of did wonders. And then later towards the trip, when I kind of got some extra time, I got greedy. Um, right, okay, I'm here. I can actually do stuff. I can, I can, I can, I can. And then everything shuts down. You know, your body just goes, no, not doing it, not playing. Unless you kind of keep treating me with kindness, uh, with a little bit of awareness, I'm not playing ball. So it's really interesting to kind of watch uh, how that dialogue works. I, I think I'm going to go coach freediving because I've just worked out that you don't have to talk to people for six minutes minimum. <laughs> and they're in the water. It sounds like idyllic at times. <laughs> oh, there are downsides, trust me. <laughs> um, I really, it's very interesting to listen to you talk um, and the expression and the words that you used are really, really positive words so when i'm saying like i mean about fear and the depths and you're taught you you come back with words like magical yeah um, I, I mean i i'm just going to go off here in a little tangent you've obviously done a lot of work even on yourself and your own mindset mm -hmm. what have you done kind of to help you as regards diving and um, that's kind of transferred across both in working with your coach or even on everyday life yeah I, I suppose i'm lucky in a way and this is going to sound funny like i would have gone to therapy or counseling or whatever you want to call it for years yeah. Um, and I think that's definitely created a good awareness. It, so, yeah, you know, the, the, there is a perception of that and why we do it and why we need to do it and, and so on. I think that's a different discussion. But what it has generated me is an honesty. And you cannot lie underwater. You cannot lie to yourself or to someone else underwater. So, yeah, you know. That, that, uh, do you know what? That is, that, what that's it. That's it. That, yeah. that, that is class. I love that. I yeah. love I that. I really like that. That's I amazing. Can, I can be going around going, yeah, no bother, I can do that for you. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sound. No, no, that didn't bother me at all. And I can be going around with a smile on my face, uh, multitasking, uh, creating massive to-do lists, and inside I'm going, Whoa! Um, But when you take that underwater, what first comes out is the, Whoa! you have to, I think, create a balance, create a, um, a congruence with the external and the internal. They have to be matching. And if they're not, you're fucked. You know, it just, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So you get fantastic. on it or get out yeah. of the water. It's obviously that honesty and that understanding that you have in yourself um, that, you know, uh, you, you could think there's an awful lot of people in sports, various different sports could really benefit from doing that work with themselves because they set unrealistic expectations yeah. or they have um, unrealistic ambitions or they actually uh, aren't willing and honest with themselves to realize that maybe in, um, as they're pointing the figure, the other four fingers should be pointing back at themselves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of times I wish the sport was different. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, preparing for competition competition. Um, so you know, I I had done different sports, let's name CrossFit or weightlifting or whatever. And also I was a performer, and you definitely get an edge from that adrenaline. I love the focus it brings. Uh, I enjoy that surge of energy. And in freediving, it's totally the opposite. I'm trying to block it out. I'm trying to just stay softer. I can feel, you know, <laughs> my hands humming with energy and I'm trying to just lower the heart rate. Like I do wish at times it was a little bit different, but I guess that's the challenge of it for me anyway. That's amazing. Where's your best place you've dived? You see, this is just going to sound like a horrible list of where I've been. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's turning into a travel show now. Yeah, no, seriously. I'll be honest with you, Claire. I, I'm, I'm living off even holiday brochures <laughs> as it is. That's all I've got. Well, yeah. Um, I love Dahab. I think it's pretty special. Um, and it's special for lots of reasons. I met my partner. My partner is Egyptian. I met him there. It, the community of divers there is pretty special. Um, the color of the water. 
but mm-hmm. I have dived in, free dived in the Galapagos twice. Um, that's pretty magical. Uh, you get to see all sorts. Um, where else? Yeah, the Caribbean. I've dived in a few spots there. Like, you know, there are so there are so many. But every time I'm away, I get homesick for Irish water. Every time, nice. Irish sea, big dirty waves, smell <laughs> of seaweed, the freezing cold temperatures. Um, I definitely I get homesick for it. There's something far more raw about our, our coastline, for sure. Yeah, jeez, that's amazing. So look, what, what do you do, you know, when you're home in your downtime or, you know, what are your guilty pleasures when you're not free diving? Oh, stop. Netflix is a killer. <laughs> Netflix is a killer. <laughs> um, it is. It's a killer. Um, so it's not necessarily a guilty pleasure, but I do uh, swim or dip in the sea every morning. Um, I... Uh, I had COVID in January and I'm experiencing quite a lot of long COVID symptoms. Right. So I'm kind of back up to about four days a week swimming. And I think it just, it keeps me going again. So I'm not doing exactly what I want to do, but it's still that connection to water. It's still that humbling experience of pretty much having your arse handed to you by waves or by the temperature <laughs> or whatever it is. It's, it's honest. <laughs> there you go. And that's, that's certainly a daily or a weekly routine that I, I would find hard to to go through without. But um, yeah, Netflix is a killer. Fantastic. Oh, tell me about it. The boys, the boys gave me a recommendation of something to watch, uh, the <laughs> Drive to Survive, the Formula One documentary. I swear to God, I've watched two seasons in two days. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Now, I had a few days off, just I didn't, it wasn't that I just abandoned everything. <laughs> Was it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> got addicted to it. I know nothing about Formula One, but I just got hooked into watching these guys driving cars fast. <laughs> anyway, <Okay>. moving on. <laughs> so, so Claire, what's left? What What's next in terms of goals or uh, ambitions for yourself in the sport? What, what um, do you want to get to? I think that's kind of a hard one at the moment because, like, I know where I want to be. Um, I know what I want to do, but it's that slowness. Of, okay, well, what can I do here? Um, I don't know for how long. I'm going to be here. We had planned to get training um, end of January, um, but obviously that all changed quite quickly. So, you know, I want to represent Ireland again. I would like to do some more national records. I would like like to take those PBs a lot deeper. Yeah, and like, you know, a lot of it is about numbers, but what you have to do to get there has a massive knock-on effect or benefit into the daily life. So I kind of want to reap all those things too. That, that's interesting. Can I ask you about that in terms of, so you've, you've got to 59 meters in terms of depth, which is incredible. I find that just hard to get my head around. But how did you get there? Did you get to 10 first and then 30 or 50? And then how do you now get from 59 to where you're next going? Yeah. You know, is it slow and gradual or? It, it really depends. Like I know free divers who went from kind of zero to 60, 70 quite quickly. I had a, qu- a pretty quick trajectory in terms of progress yeah um, on your beginner's course you can go to 21 meters and I did that and then the next day I started my advanced course and you can go to 30 and I went to that and soon I was at 40 and then the next trip I hit 50 and I've been around the 50s for quite a long time now and right. um, there is something you need to do with your ears to go down to depth and that's called equalization so you might be familiar with you know holding your nose or popping it when you get on a plane you have to do the same underwater okay and my method of doing that will be quite unusual i do i, I use something called hands-free i can involuntarily uh equalize my ears which is a really cool skill and it's a bit of a party trick among free divers 
but it definitely has had drawbacks for me and progressing in depth, which says, which does a lot for your ego and not good things. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And sense of self-belief. So whilst 59 kind of sounds impressive in terms of where I want to go, it, you know, it's where, where would you like to go? You see, I don't think you can ever say this number because as soon as you hit it, yeah, you hit yeah. the next target. 70 is a goal I really want to hit. But to do that, I need to have quite a long time, a proper, <clears throat> excuse me, training cycle in the water, which will be about three, three and a half months and just spend time chipping away in it. And wow. you know, start to move into the 60s and yeah, yeah, yeah. time in the water to do that. Fantastic. Well, we, we certainly wish you all the best with that. And I've no doubt from talking to you, you'll achieve it. So we're going to just move on and ask just a couple of little questions. They're short little questions near the end before we get into your five-a-side team. And I'm interested to hear that, considering I think you have a bit of advice from that. <laughs> so, um, so look, we're just curious to know, what, what's the, the best book you've read recently? Or is there anything that you go to? Are you a book person at all? Yeah, I'm really a book person. Um, I think to balance the Netflix crap that I'm watching, I'm trying to read books that challenge me just a little bit more. So I have a stack of six right beside me, and they're all around breathing, uh, breathing awareness, uh, some neuroscience, because I did just watch, you know, three seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race yesterday. So there has to be a balance in there somewhere. <laughs> I'm, inter I'm interested in the books there because I do a section about uh, war chest and books. So give us a couple of your recommendations and I'll put them into this week's, uh, this week's podcast. Yeah, I love um, Born to Run. Um, I'm not a runner, but it definitely makes me want to go out and move because I can. I always find that really inspiring. Uh, William Truebridge, so he's a world record holder freediver. His book is called Oxygen. And I really loved it because he's, you know, he's insanely talented and has incredible achievements under his belt. But, you know, reading it, you go, I feel that too. You know, he can yeah. really, uh, it resonates with you. Um, I think that's called Oxygen. I have it on my uh, Kindle and I never know the names when they're on my Kindle when they're not physical books. Also reading Buddha's Brain at the moment, which is a really nice introduction to uh, neuroscience. James yeah. Nestor's Breathe. I think that's the war chest done for this week, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Some brilliant recommendations there. I, 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 I'm loving that. I love that you reference neuroscience. It's a big thing that I'm into at the moment. Mm. I went back to college and did some stuff on it. I find it fascinating. Oh, listen, it's, it's just brilliant. Mark is the book person, by the way. So I'm, I'm going to take a little bit off tangent. I'm, I'm more the music guy. So what's your, what's your go-to album? Uh, at the moment, Movement by Hosier. I think if there's a soundtrack of the last seven eight nine months it's that it's it is it's my absolute go-to it's soothing it's oh it's it's everything at the moment uh, brilliant yeah i love him actually my, my son loves him oh, oh so look we're, we're coming towards the end of a chat and we're going to ask you two final questions so one um what's your favorite sporting memory i guess it has to be something around the world championships 2019 and it's probably before the event happened um in the athletes parade carrying the irish flag wow, wow. Uh, family there uh friends there that was just yeah that was uh, an incredible moment a really really incredible moment but matched with that is after my first dive and i blacked out so my dive was disqualified we watched my dive in the big screen because it was a little bit behind and my family obviously knew the outcome because i was back with them and 
you know, there's the, the Spectator's Village big screen and it was all very French. Um, people were quite quiet and suddenly Team Ireland were there. I was the only Irish athlete, but my family, my friends were there. And if goodwill could have changed the outcome of the dive, I would have won the fucking thing. <laughs> they cheered for me like nothing I've heard before. Like they, like to the point where I, you know, everyone was kind of going, what are these people on? All decked out in Irish gear, tricolours, the whole lot. I just thought, this is incredible. So Brilliant. Irish fans, even when it's free diving, are the best in the world. Ah, oh, superb. I, I really like that. I don't think, so it's, look, I think it's going to be hard. Sorry, Gav. I think it's going to be hard for anybody to top um, holding their flags at, yeah. at an event like that. That's yeah, cool. it's pretty, pretty special pretty memory good. to hold, I would imagine. Yeah, that's cool. So look, we're, we're coming towards the end of our chat, Claire. It has been fascinating. I, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've learned so much. It's challenged so much of my own thinking about how we can adapt different sports and and ways of training our own players. I really love the stuff about breeding. Got to learn a little bit more about that myself. But our last question, as, as we ask all of our guests, it's it's the final question. It's to name your dream fantasy five-a-side team. Now, we are primarily a football podcast, <laughs> but we fully respect people have put in some unbelievable picks in their teams. So uh, who would you put on your dream fantasy five-a-side team? See, I asked my brother for help on this. And I think he gave me made-up names to make a fool of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, tell us the names he gave you. For no, that. there is no way I'm reading that. It sounds like when uh, Bart rings Mo in the bar and asks her to get her. <laughs> so I'm not reading those out loud. Okay, you can send them privately on WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, I, I'm going to go straight to free diving. So if I can make a five-a-side free dive team. Brilliant, um, brilliant. I think, I'm thinking of pals. I'm thinking of pals in Egypt. Um, you know, free diving is predominantly a solo sport. We do have to do a lot of mental reflection. So it can... It can get, I won't say selfish, but there's a lot of navel gazing as well. And it, you can become quite um, all about you. So I'm thinking of my pals in Egypt who share just as much in your achievements and your personal best as they do in their own, whether that's um, 30 meters or 100 meters, each personal best is celebrated. So to name one will be Dave McGowan. Uh, he's an Irish diver from Mullingar. He lives in Dahab at the moment. He's a good pal and a super training buddy. Um, I'd have to give a shout out to my coach, uh, Nathan Vinsky, um, who tells me when to just shut up and dive. And then also <laughs> when to, you know, talk it through. He is someone I definitely, definitely want on my team. Um, now I'm absolutely drawing a blank. And there, there are so, there's so many uh, super female free divers as well but you should uh, put yourself on your team that's allowed yes i'm going to be on my team actually that that would be nice um <laughs> one other danish diver as i never pronounce his name properly stig Proust, i think it is he he gave me a, a savage pep talk after my blackout in the world championships and you know kind of forced me to realize that my 30 40 50 meter dive was just as impressive and important as as the the top guys and to treat it as such that was quite a big lesson. I want him on my team. Yeah, let's have a smaller team. There, there are lots of other women. To, to name just one woman, I'd feel bad leaving the other ones out. No, that's cool. We'll leave it at that. 
that, that's just amazing. As I said, it's, it is incredible what you can learn when you open your mind and you're just willing to listen. I, I've learned a huge amount today and it's just been a good one. I've enjoyed just chatting to you as a person because I think you, you've an awful lot of good lessons that we can all take on board. Just about mindfulness, mm-hmm. breathing, slowing down, reflecting. You know, you use a lot of great language. Um, but secondly, you know, you're being your national record holder. You've all these brilliant things to your sporting career and you keep wanting to get better. I think there's a lesson in that for everybody. So it, it's been brilliant. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the chat. I'm so pleased that the boys recommended it and, and a shout out to Mick Brown for recommending that we get in touch with you. That, that was just a great, great shout. And we'd love to have you back you know, somewhere on in the future. Uh, Graham Merrigan, by the way, has already booked himself in for episode 240. He told us that when we interviewed him because he was laughing because that's how many episodes his podcast is at currently and we're at 12. But so, yeah, maybe we'll get you back on, Claire, in a couple of years when we're up in the hundreds, please, God. And uh, well, I have a tricolor behind me and some new national Fantastic. Yeah, there that sounds go. good to me. But look, it only say, remains... Sorry, Mark, go on. Yeah, I have to say, it's just incredibly enlightening. Um, and actually quite thought-provoking and inspirational like i mean just yeah. what you can do with your mind um, um the, like six minutes is just it just it blows me away and to get to that depth but what you can train and to develop your mind to do just makes me question some t- some, some some of the other things that goes on but incredible story brilliant stuff loved it thank you so brilliant much. well look claire it, it only remains for me on behalf of myself and mark and all the other guys involved with the show to thank you for coming on and giving up your time and being so open and honest with us uh, and being so humorous with us. It's great that we can, you know, laugh sometimes at ourselves. And and that's not a bad skill either. But it's been a brilliant chat. We wish you all the very best for the future. And we'll certainly keep a keen eye on how you're progressing. And hopefully we will chat to you somewhere into the future. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. So moving on to the coaches, War Chest. Uh, in the War Chest every week, we try to recommend a, a variety of things for coaches to check out just to aid with your own personal development. So Mark, what can you recommend for us this week? Three things, two books. I'm back on books again. So the first book I have is uh, Shoe Dog. It's the guy who created Nike. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. There was a documentary done on it as well. It's a really, really interesting book on how the whole sneakers as they call them in the states but the whole trainer industry just exploded in america um, and how uh, phil knight who, who borrowed 50 quid from his 50 dollars from his dad but set up the company of nike and where it went to so really really interesting a good read just for something a little bit different but i mean just the role that they have and the money that ended up going into sports in america off the back of the trainer wars with nike and, um, and, and various other models over there so yeah a good read uh, the other book i have is it's an old one but it's one of my favorite ones and it's just i thought i'd mention it again considering he was on the high performance uh, podcast it's steve salas on educating football it is uh, a Excellent rates. Uh, Steve is was involved in Sunderland until I die and had coached at England international level at youth level. And he's also but biggest thing I find interesting with Steve is he's a teacher and an educator and has worked in some of the hardest schools in inner city London. His book is built into six different sections, very easy to read, um, and has lots of great advice around mindset and language and teaching and the similarities. And it's just so simple to read, but so much great information. And so I strongly recommend that. And then the last one is a documentary that you mentioned, Gab, but Mick had shared with me a while back, The Battered Bastard of Baseball. It's on Netflix. It's a true story. Uh, Kurt Russell, the actor, his uh, father, Bing, um, who, set up, who uh, set up in Portland in the 70s, this baseball team, they were the first 
first uh, or one of the only uh, independent teams at their time and it was it's just really really interesting it's just really interesting when you talk about like they're talking about the tryouts where you had all these rejects and walk-ins and guys sleeping in their car going in and how they went on and formed the team very very nice it's a good story it's a good it's a good watch and uh, it's something really interesting back to the simpler times of football probably the opposite to the, the whole shitey super league so it was, yeah good watch brilliant yeah some great things to check out I watched that battered bastards of baseball fantastic just just really really good so excellent stuff Mark must check them out just some coaching shout outs for the week I uh, just want to name check a couple of coaches uh, who engaged with us on Twitter during the week first up it's the Irish football blog at Blog Irish, uh, some really nice messages from the lads during the week. So fair play, keep up the good work with what you guys do. And second shout out to Niall Doolan at Niall O'Doolan on Twitter. Niall is always sharing some decent content with me. Um, so thanks for that. Really appreciate it. So that's it, folks. The end of the third episode of season two. My thanks as always to the lads, Mark, Paul, Willie and Mick for sharing their knowledge and experiences. Cheers also to Claire Walsh for joining us tonight. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating to hear Claire talk about her sport and we wish her continued success in that world of free driving. Thanks again, as always, to new friends of the show, Playerstack Data, for sponsoring Season 2. It really is appreciated, lads, that you're, you're on board with us. Finally, thanks as ever to all of the brilliant coaches out there for your continued dedication to your players. In a week that saw us back on the grass at last, it's just amazing to be back coaching with the players. Continued uh, best wishes and good luck for the season ahead. Please, as ever, give the pod a follow and help us to spread the word. Don't forget to leave us comments so we can improve how we help you on your coaching journey. Get in touch with us as usual at Coaching Badges on Twitter. And remember, when it comes to coaching, there's no right or wrong way, but there's always a better way.